Due to the graphic nature of the events at this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of 19th century medical practices, which include violence and torture. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Ruby wanted to see one of the most haunted places in Australia. For weeks, she'd twisted her friend Clive's arm until he agreed to drive the six hours to Ararat with her. But Aradale Mental Hospital was a total bust. There were no ghosts walking alongside them, just a tour guide with a penchant for theatrical stories. She asked if they could go up to the isolation chambers in a last-ditch attempt to justify the trip before heading back to the little motor inn they'd seen on the way. Delightful, Clive had said. Just delightful. Sensing the tension between Ruby and Clive, the tour guide acquiesced. They left the parched white of the well-trafficked hallway behind, stepping across a dark threshold and into a dank, coal-black void. The peeling walls looked necrotic in the pale beam of the guide's flashlight. Grime coated everything. Even the air felt wet and moldy. It was hard to imagine that this place could ever have been hygienic, but from the stories she'd heard, it had rarely been clean to begin with. A mannequin in a restraining jacket stood outside of the hall of single cells. Ruby asked if she could try it on, but she somehow had her hands on the jacket before the guide could speak. Then she fell to her knees, screaming. There was something pushing down on her, pushing down so hard. She struggled to speak, clawing at empty air as a hot sharpness spread over her shoulders. Clive and the guide stood frozen, unsure how to help. The thing was getting heavier. The muscles below her neck were burning, tearing sinew by sinew. And then it was gone. Clive finally moved, pulling her close. Ruby's fingers found two arcs of teeth on her skin, the right size for a man, but far sharper than a human's should be. The tour guide rushed her to first aid to clean and examine the bite. But as Ruby braced for the cleansing sting of the alcoholic wipe, she felt nothing but wet cold and the nurse's shaking hands. The wound had disappeared before his eyes, leaving only fresh, red blood behind. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Airedale Mental Hospital, the site of one of the darkest chapters of Australian medical history. To this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful to you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. We talk about the American Wild West, but at the height of the British Empire, Australia was the final frontier. And no frontier would be complete without a gold rush. In 1851, gold was discovered in the fields just above Melbourne, the capital of the Australian colony of Victoria. It was the greatest gold rush the world had ever seen. But the sudden influx of people quickly exposed the gaps in the young colony's social services. By the 1860s, Victoria was known as the maddest place on earth. The colonial government quickly ordered the construction of several mental health facilities outside of Melbourne to take on what they called imported insanity. The grandest of these facilities was in Ararat, a small mining town two and a half hours north of the now bustling city. Completed in 1866 and opened in 1867, Ararat Lunatic Asylum, as Aradale was known then, was entirely self-contained, with its own gardens, brewery, orchard, vineyard, and spaces for livestock, covering 250 acres. The asylum itself is a gorgeous Italianate fortress that grew to 63 buildings over the course of its 130-year history. But Ararat Lunatic Asylum's size and grandeur wasn't the cause of its high profile in the conversation about Her Majesty's mental health system. The hospital's remote nature and sprawling size made it the perfect place for abuse and experimentation to go unchecked. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the hospital's patients never should have been there in the first place. In 1884, the Royal Commission for the Insane and Inebriate reported to the Crown that the Ararat Lunatic Asylum was home to many people who would not have been institutionalized in England or Scotland. These patients were born with physical abnormalities, traumatized by their misfortunes during the gold rush, or exhibiting signs of unwanted behavior, perceived promiscuity or homosexuality, addiction, postpartum depression, or just being in the way. Mabel was a curious soul, always interested in exploring the world with her whole being. But that curiosity was her downfall when she became too familiar with men. She was her family's greatest shame but she didn't understand why her personal affairs were cause for concern. She was discreet and careful. There were no bastards to worry about, nor rumors of her behavior swirling through their small mining town. But it wasn't enough for her family. She never forgot the look on the town doctor's face as he signed the paper to send her to Ararat. Dr. Fox had nursed her through scarlet fever when she was a child, 
Mabel wondered if he was sending her to her death now. At first, Mabel had hoped she would be able to convince the medical officers that she was perfectly all right. But there was something hard behind their eyes. It was as though their souls had already left their bodies. The women had a wing to themselves, but what should have been a sanctuary quickly became a torture chamber. The women attendants took particular pleasure in their positions of power, restraining and punishing the patients for infractions both real and imagined. They shoved purgatives down Mabel's throat with a dollop of sugar on a spoon to rid her body of wickedness. She spent her nights huddled over the toilet, listening to the screams of the other patients. She reminded herself of her family's names to help her hold on to who she was. Josiah, David, Emmeline, Abigail, Matthew. They may have hated her, but they were hers. Their memory was all she had now. She got used to the bruises, but the muttered remarks that she deserved to be treated this way stung her skin more coldly than the ice bath she was thrown into each Friday. They threatened to throw her in an operating room and have the surgeons deal with her. As she struggled to convince a doctor that she might be doing better, Miss Carey grabbed her by the hair and yanked her away. She tried to break out of the attendant's iron-like grip, but there was no escape. Chunks of her hair fell to the cracked floor, but Miss Carey only held tighter until she threw Mabel into a small wooden cage with iron locks. Mabel could barely stand up in this new prison. She was to crouch in the container until Miss Carey saw fit to take her out. There was a small window so she could see the other patients, but no one paid her any mind. Fear kept them at bay. Hours passed. Manacles rattled next to her. Another patient was chained to the walls in the larger room. She wanted to ask what crime they'd committed, if they were all right. But Mabel couldn't bring herself to fight for that small scrap of humanity when speaking carried the risk of more time in the cage. Her body ached. She sat down on the floor of the box, feeling the slats of the rough wood bite into her skin, leaving a row of splinters. She repeated the names of her family again. Josiah. David. The person chained next to her received a meal, but Mabel didn't even warrant a glance from the night staff. Minutes stretched into hours. Emmeline. Abigail. She slept in a corner of the box, her knees pressed uncomfortably against her stomach. Matthew. Groans of pain echoed off the walls and clouded her ears. She recited faster. Josiah, David, Emmeline, Abig... The patient next to her rattled their chains wildly. She could hear someone fighting the restraining jacket they'd been put in, useless arms twitching at their sides. Her heartbeat pounded in her ears, and soon another voice joined hers, then another, 
Josiah, David, Emmeline, Abigail, Abigail! She heard laughter and hooting. Abba! <laughs> A stray rat scurried into the box with her. It wriggled across her feet. She shook her legs violently, but it wouldn't be deterred. It sank its teeth into her thigh, and her screams joined the wails of those around her. Morning could not come soon enough. Mabel wanted to cry tears of relief when the wooden slatted doors finally opened. But she was greeted with a heavy smack across her jaw by Miss Carey. For the next few days, Mabel was resigned to eating as the epileptic patients did, bread soaked in a tasteless broth. She couldn't open her bruised jaw wide enough to chew. She recited, Josiah, Emmeline, David. She'd forgotten someone, but she couldn't remember who. And yet she held out hope. She'd grown quiet, kept her head down. She'd even been assigned skilled work, mending and constructing uniforms for the staff. She spent a week sewing, nervously checking each stitch to make sure it was perfect. On the eighth day, Mabel sat down at her workstation, opened her bag, and found that all of her work had vanished. She asked the women around her if her work had somehow ended up in their bags, but there was no trace of it. Mabel felt her heart stop as Miss Carey entered the workroom for a supposedly impromptu inspection. With a wicked smile, she opened Mabel's bag and pronounced to the room that the fires of hell, Mabel's future home, had consumed her work. Mabel's blood turned cold. She would be blamed for the missing material. It would be a black mark in her case file, evidence that she wasn't ready to rejoin society and may never be ready to do so. She swallowed the scream in her throat. She would remain calm. She had to. She had to. Josiah, Emmeline, David. She tried to remember. Josiah, Emmeline, Dave. Miss Carey slapped Mabel so hard her ears rang. Josiah, Emmeline, David. Miss Carey screamed at her, called her a whore, a harlot, and a Jezebel. But Mabel could not hear them clearly. She nodded mildly. What else could she do? Josiah, Emmeline. David. Miss Carey grabbed Mabel by the shoulders and threw her to the ground. Josiah, Emmeline, David, Abigail. She'd forgotten Abigail. How could she forget Abigail? Mabel pushed herself up from the floor. Miss Carey smacked her again. Mabel's head hit the unforgiving ground, and black dots danced in her vision. She held in her frustration as it grew 
to full-blown anger. Josiah, Emmeline, David, Abigail. There was someone else missing. Miss Carrie straddled Mabel's chest and brought her knees down, forcing the air from Mabel's lungs. She tried to cry out, but a wet wheeze escaped her lips. Mabel tried to remember what she'd been fighting for. She tried to think of her family's names. Josiah, Emmeline, but there was nothing but a high-pitched scream in her ear. The weight in her heart and the relentless pressure on her chest. She could feel her bones bending under the weight of the attendant. The woman's smile had shriveled to pure disgust. Please, Mabel barely managed to squeak out. Please, Abigail, please, don't leave. And then the world went black. Mabel remembers it all now. She walks the halls freely, turning her face up to the harvest moon. She watches Miss Carrie go about her work. It is all Mabel can do now. Watch and remember. Miss Carrie pauses, feels the sudden cold where there's never been a draft. She feels a heaviness against her chest, and she remembers too. In 1876, mental patient Emma Riley told a Victoria investigative committee about the persecution and abuse she experienced at the hands of a woman attendant who remained completely unchecked by a disinterested and irresponsible hospital administration. The woman had nearly smothered her to death and had intentionally undermined her attempts to demonstrate her recovery from mental illness. The committee acknowledged Emma's testimony and commended her rationality, but Emma wouldn't be released from the hospital for another 11 years. If I had not been so roughly treated, she said, I think I might have gone away long before this. In the mid-19th century, experiences like Emma's were the standard, not the exception. The massive need for staff at Victoria's new asylums meant that many of their attendants and aides had no medical experience of any kind, let alone any education in the treatment of the mentally ill. This dearth of training resulted in abuse and neglect and the lack of oversight in hiring allowed sadistic attendants to exploit a population that Victorian society had already dehumanized. Even if medical staff cared about the abuses they witnessed, they were unable to reprimand or even discipline the attendants, who reported directly to the hospital's politically appointed off-site administrator. Guides at Airedale tell visitors about the spirit of a nurse who keeps an oppressive eye on visitors to the women's wing. It took far too long for Emma to escape the hell that was Victoria's mental health system. It seems this spirit, and many others, never did.
Coming up, we'll have more of the horrors that forever imprinted the Airedale Mental Hospital. Now, back to the story. In 1876, an undercover reporter who identified himself only as a vagabond began a series of reports on the horrifying state of the asylums in Victoria. He quickly cultivated an avid readership as hospital administrations hopelessly searched to find his true identity. The vagabond, who was later revealed to be an English Ford war correspondent named Julian Thomas, had finally confronted Victorian society with their failure to care for the mentally ill. Things changed. Accountability grew. Patients were getting better. Unfortunately, the system quickly slid backwards. In 1898, the percentage of mental illness recoveries and mental illness institutionalizations had dropped almost 25% in 20 years. What was worse... Emma Riley's statement that her institutionalization hurt rather than helped proved painfully true. Patients who spent longer than 12 months in Airedale showed a downward spiral in terms of lucidity. This could have been because Airedale's remote location gave its doctors the confidence to experiment with new techniques on resistant patients without bureaucratic interference. This lack of oversight emboldened one surgeon to try a daring and dangerous new treatment for his chronically violent cases, the lobotomy. (laughs) Owen believed that things could change in the treatment of mental illness, and he wanted to be a part of it. But he didn't want to start at Ararat. There were reports of patients roaming naked, some of them hiding their feces from attendants, only to fling it near the wells, causing bouts of intestinal disease in those who drank the water. And then there were the strange deaths, the ones that were blamed on the Chinese immigrants in the ward. No one had bothered to hire a translator to figure out what had really happened. But Owen had agreed to follow his mentor, Dr. Piper, to the little town built around the massive fortress, Maybe with a new superintendent, the infamous institution would be better. Owen had done his best to steal himself, but he was still unprepared for the immensity of the structure. He saw a few patients standing idly near a low wall. He was comforted by the notion that some of his charges were feeling well enough to be outside unsupervised, with no fear of escape. But as he got closer, he realized the asylum had haha walls. This ingenious and sinister architectural innovation resembled the standard low fence of a country estate as one approached. But when you crossed to the patient side, the ground sloped downward rapidly until it reached the wall, revealing the full and unassailable height of the fortification, a confinement that was only visible to the confined. Owen continued on, through the great doors to the men's wing. A man with tawny hair and glazed eyes stood by the entrance, immobilized by long cloth tied at his neck and feet. Completely unnecessary chains were looped around his ankles. Owen felt his anger rising. The unfortunate patient's position suggested that the man had been placed here 
to frighten his fellows. There was certainly no alleviation of suffering. <laughs> Owen hoped to speak to Dr. Piper as soon as he arrived, but he was quickly swept into rounds with a senior doctor on staff. The rounds were uninspiring as the doctors treated their patients like barnyard animals rather than humans. Piper told Owen the first issue was overcrowding. Some patients had been in the asylum since it opened, and Piper refused to believe that they were incurable. He'd been following the work of a Swiss doctor who had developed a system of psychosurgery to assist patients who struggled with persistent hallucinations, paranoia, and violence. He hoped to lower the intensity with which his patients reacted to the world by removing parts of the brain that amplified their reactions. If done correctly, moods could be managed without any damage to the senses and cognition of the patient. The results were not particularly consistent, but in cases like the long-term residents of Ararat, it would be the first attempt at a new treatment. Owen was sure that any prospect of health and escape was the greatest kindness a physician could offer his patient. Owen studied case files and conducted interviews for weeks looking for the perfect candidate. He found it in George James, the tawny-haired man who had greeted Owen his first day. George had been a patient of the hospital for the last six years and was prone to violent outbursts resulting in frequent isolation and painful restraint for days at a time. Owen tried to sit down with George repeatedly, but the mix of his fear and hostility often prevented the conversation from going anywhere. Every now and then, though, George grew quiet. In these moments, he looked well, rational, horrified by what he'd done. He didn't want to be this way, he said. Owen told him, they would help. He just didn't tell him how. Owen supplied George with his usual medical comforts, offering some more ale for good measure. When George was so drunk that he could no longer stand on his own, Owen had the attendants take him to the operating room. George tried to fight the men, but his movements were too slow. With ease, the attendants strapped him down to the table and then took their leave. George tried to move his head from side to side, but he only managed a small turn. Owen spoke softly to George, reassuring him. Dr. Piper instructed Owen to hold George's head between his palms as an extra precaution. They had to be precise in their work for both the patient's safety and the potential publication of their work. Owen could feel George trembling beneath his fingertips. The man was dripping with sweat, the moisture clinging to his own palms as George's fingers clenched on the table. George kept trying to jerk away, but Owen held firm as Dr. Piper inserted the rod into George's head through the orbital socket. Smooth, clean, as intended. George screamed in pain, and Owen had to brace himself against the operating table to hold him in place. He could see the rod moving around George's skull as Dr. Piper tapped at the front 
of the frontal cortex. Owen desperately wanted to look away from George's pleading eyes, but he forced himself to hold his patient's gaze, to assure him in his own quiet way that they were helping. George went still. Owen searched for a pulse with his few free fingers, but he couldn't find it over the loud beating of his own heart. George's eyes fluttered ever so slowly, but whatever light had been in them before was gone now. Dr. Piper made a few more jabs at the area before sliding the rod back out again. It was coated in a glossy mixture of gray and white that looked nothing like the anatomical specimens Owen had examined at school. But George was still breathing, deep in fact, the even breath of sleep. Piper smiled at Owen and offered his hand for the younger man to shake. Owen did so, but he could not stop the tremor that had overtaken him. The attendants dragged George's limp body back toward one of the barrack-style cots. Owen had instructed that a chair be placed by the bed, but they ignored him. They knew not even Piper could discipline them. Owen dragged his own chair beside his patient and waited. Hours passed without incident. Owen's eyelids had started to droop when George's body began to convulse. Owen snapped to attention and checked George's restraints. Owen reached for the bromide he had on hand, hoping to sedate his patient until his body could stabilize. One of George's eyes opened and met Owen's gaze. As his body twitched, he kept his stare pinned on the young doctor. George's pupils dilated at an alarming rate flooding the whites of his eye until the whole orb was filled with inky darkness. Owen could not look away. Just as soon as the motions had begun, they ceased. George's eyes closed again. His breathing slowed. Owen carefully opened one of the man's eyelids. Flecks of green and brown surrounded a perfectly normal-looking pupil. When Dr. Piper arrived the next morning to open his office, Owen was standing outside, hair disheveled, eyes red. Owen told him about George's attack, but Dr. Piper didn't think it was cause for concern. The attendants reported that George was doing fine this morning, calm, serene even. It was an early sign, yes, but the treatment might have worked. Owen watched George carefully for the next few days, but George did appear to be doing better. He showed no aggression toward himself or others, and his convulsions had ceased. He'd even spent some time outside, his face turned toward the sun. But there was something about George's eyes that still unnerved Owen. It was mid-afternoon when Owen saw George next. He was walking in the garden, and muttering to himself. Owen went over to say hello. George waved quietly and opened his mouth to speak. Spongy gray chunks and cloudy white liquid tumbled from his lips, landing with a wet squelch on the grass. 
Owen dived to retrieve them, to catch George before he collapsed. But the patient just looked at him, strangely, serenely. Owen went to visit George the next morning, and was told the only way to do that was to take a trip down to the operating suite. No, no, Piper would not work without him. It had to be a mistake. It couldn't be. He sprinted toward the surgery wing and burst through the doors. There lay George, the top half of his head resting on a shiny silver tray, shorn away just above the temples. Owen jerked back in surprise. Dr. Piper wasn't the man operating on George. This was a doctor that Owen had never seen before. He had not expected his mentor to choose someone else to help with these experiments. While part of him was relieved, he was also deathly afraid of what this meant for him. The man asked Owen to make himself useful. He crept toward the table, but couldn't bring himself to look at George. He could hear the wet sounds of the doctor prodding through George's brain. He didn't know if he wanted his patient to be alive or dead, which was worse. Owen studied the other man carefully. Blood and brain fluid covered his hands, but the surgeon still offered one of them to Owen, introducing himself as the asylum's medical examiner. Owen could not bring himself to touch the other man. He could only stare at George's blood as it dripped from the examiner's fingers. The man gave a small shrug, suit yourself, and went back to his work, sewing up a Y-shaped incision on George's torso. Owen stared at George's fingers, resting peacefully at his side. One of them twitched. It was the slightest of movements, but Owen saw it, and then his whole hand moved. Owen grabbed the hand in his own, The examiner regarded him with curiosity. Owen's voice trembled as he told the surgeon that George was alive. He'd seen it happen. The other doctor stifled a chuckle. Just a cadaveric spasm. Owen knew it was a lie. George was alive. They needed to put him back together before it was too late. He reached for the brain and tried to place it back on George's head, but the tissue was thick and slippery below his fingers. The folds had loosened, spilling over its intended seat. The surgeon began shouting, but Owen couldn't hear what he was saying. He felt someone tugging at his arms. An attendant wrestled the organ out of Owen's hands. They dragged Owen out of the surgical room and back through the halls of Ararat. They threw him into his office and locked the door behind them. After hours had passed, two attendants escorted him to a wagon. Dr. Piper looked on with a pained, disappointed expression as the medical examiner Owen had accosted rocked back and forth on his heels. Owen was to be taken to Kew to recover as a patient, as a lunatic. No! He screamed. They didn't understand. George was alive. He was in pain. He was suffering on that shiny metal table, and nobody seemed to care. 
As they pulled away from Ararat, Owen took one last look at the Italianate battlements, the wall of windows. And there, in the top left, was George, his eyes black and his exposed brain glistening, smiling serenely as he watched Owen go. As the reputation of the undercover reporter, known as the Vagabond, grew, he was forced to go deeper into the world of Victoria's asylums to both maintain his cover and expose the truth. He feared he would become like the many doctors in the Commonwealth who had found themselves on the other side of their asylum's locked doors after developing cases of general paralysis of the insane a nervous condition that was growing among middle-class men in their 30s and 40s. In 1889, Swiss psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt published the results of his psychosurgery on six patients, five of which suffered from what we would later call schizophrenia. He removed parts of the frontal, temporal, and temporoparietal lobes over the course of multiple procedures on each patient, One patient experienced epileptic convulsions and passed away shortly after. Another showed improvement, but then committed suicide. Two showed no change. The last pair became, to use Burkhardt's own words, quiet. He received immediate pushback, and in some cases, open ridicule from his colleagues. But his belief in separate faculties of the brain serving specific purpose would form the basis for both the modern-day lobotomy and general neurosurgery. In 1891, he wrote, Doctors are different by nature. One kind adheres to the old principle, first do no harm. The other one says, It is better to do something than do nothing. I certainly belong to the second category. Coming up, we'll visit the haunting imprint left on the hospital to this day. Now, back to the story. At the peak of its operation in 1959, Ararat Mental Hospital housed approximately 900 patients and close to 500 staff. The term lunatic had fallen out of favor as both a medical term and in common parlance the town held a contest to rename the hospital, and Mrs. Hansen, a local woman, coined the title of Aradale. By the 1970s, Aradale had begun to gain ground against its previous reputation. While it housed notable Australian criminals Mark Chopper Reed and Gary David Webb, it also integrated new treatment techniques and patient-focused treatments. Multiple generations of Ararat families served as staff at the hospital, and many residents of Ararat credit Aradale for the wider acceptance of disabled people in the town. But ultimately, the facility became either too expensive to maintain or too redundant in a changing paradigm of mental health treatment, depending on who you spoke to. Aradale Mental Hospital closed on December 10th 1993. But that wasn't the end. 
Some of the many buildings are leased to the Melbourne Polytechnic School. The campus holds a 250-ton winery and teaches winemaking, marketing, and vineyard management. Yet many of the buildings lay empty, languishing in an economic drought as groundskeepers struggle to maintain the exteriors of the massive facility. The town pulled together to preserve Jay Ward and Airedale, forming the Friends of Jay Ward, who offer both day and night tours and overnight paranormal investigations for the brave. The Airedale tours were briefly shuttered in 2015 due to structural concerns, but the complex was reopened to guests in 2016. You'll have to get in quick if you want to participate in an overnight investigation. They're currently sold out until May 2019. Martin didn't frighten easily. The weed always helped with that. He told Kurt he'd be fine with staying overnight in the haunted hospital, as long as he could have a smoke first. Kurt stopped the car at the side of the long road to the asylum, letting Martin find his cool as the quasi-Venetian fortress loomed far off, blocking out a gray sky and already sinking sun. They were early. But Kurt had told him he'd wanted to see it in the day, to know what it was like when it was safe. A dark part of Martin laughed at the notion of an asylum actually living up to its name. He knew a person like him would never have been allowed to leave a place like this. All right, let's go, Kurt said, and they piled into the car again. To Martin's confusion, they turned around, moving back toward Ararat proper, Was Kurt losing his nerve? Kurt laughed. We're going to J-Ward, the old jail. And the old jail, which had housed so many notorious criminals, was in the middle of town, right across from a park. It began with a ghost tour. Tales of bigger-than-life criminals like Chopper Reed, who convinced an inmate to chop off his own ears so he could be transferred to the medical wing. Gary Webb, whose self-mutilation and violent outbursts were so severe that the Victorian government created a provision for preventative detention in 1990 to keep him off the street. They explored the hangman's gallows, the shower block, and exercise yards, tried to communicate with a German cook and a little boy in the old kitchen, the guide offered to let the guests try the restraining jackets. Kurt took a picture of a grinning Martin, his hands permanently forced into his pockets. It was all very dark, and Kurt was eating it up. Martin was happy Kurt was having fun, but was even happier when the guides brought them into the original dining hall for pizza. They started the guided investigation portion of the night. Three hours of waving around spirit boxes, EMF meters, and thermal imaging cameras. Kurt said he didn't appreciate Martin's Ghostbusters references, but he smiled anyway. Then came the part that Martin had wanted the weed for, the sleepover in the original cells. The guide helped them set up their camp mats and sleeping bags not commenting on how close together they'd put them. Kurt rolled onto his stomach, 
aiming his camera toward the hallway. Martin kept his eyes upward, watching the dark spots in the ceiling swirl into smiling faces. He heard Kurt breathing slow. The camera softly touched the floor. He turned to pack it away and tuck Kurt in, but then he stopped. The recorder Kurt had brought with him was still recording, the little red light shining in the dark, but it was facing the wrong way. Martin turned the recorder back toward the hallway, removed the lens from the DSLR, and placed it back in its case. Kurt was shivering. Martin pulled the top of the sleeping bag up to his chin. The voice recorder was the wrong way round again. Slanted floor, Martin muttered, reaching to turn it back. The recorder nearly blew out his ears with static. He managed to turn it off, waiting to hear shouts of displeasure from the other guests. Nothing. Maybe they decided a ghost had done it. A strange sound echoed down the corridor, as if someone was doing construction on the inside of a carcass. Martin looked to Kurt. He slept on, his hair covering his face. Martin looked into the hallway again, standing up. Slowly, he felt something tugging at his jacket, trying to pull him into the hallway. But that was ridiculous. It had to be the weed. The tug came harder this time, but Martin stood his ground. As he waited for the next tug to come, he felt a push instead. The change in direction caught him off guard, and he fell to the ground next to Kurt. The sound had stopped. Martin looked around in the dim light of the cells, but he couldn't tell if anyone else was awake. Kurt could sleep through a hurricane. Martin used to think it was cute. Now, it was just exhausting. His voice sounded hollow as he let out a small, still semi-relaxed, hey. He wasn't sure who or what he was calling, or if he was just speaking to remind himself he was there. Kurt had wanted to be up at 2 or 3 a.m. when the veil was thin, or so he'd said. It wasn't even one yet. Martin sat down on the cold floor, fitting his feet into the confines of the sleeping bag before sliding the rest of his body back in. He laid back and the discoloration of the wall danced again in front of his eyes. There was comfort in knowing his reality was fungible for the usual reasons. As his eyes started to close, he saw a blurry figure standing over him. He chalked it up to their tour guide checking up on everyone, then gave himself over to the comforting darkness. Martin woke with a start. He didn't know how long he'd been asleep or what had woken him, but something had set his heart racing. He glanced around the room, but nothing was out of the ordinary. As Martin searched his pants for his phone, he felt something skitter across his leg. 
he held still. It scampered over his leg again. Then another. Then another. Soon, his legs were trembling uncontrollably with the weight of whatever was inside his sleeping bag. His fingers shook as he unzipped the zipper slowly. In the dim light, whatever was on his legs looked like one large, writhing mass. As his eyes adjusted, he started to see the individual shapes. They were rats running up and down his legs, searching for some way to dig through the fabric. He hadn't meant to scream, but he couldn't stop. He tried to stand up and felt their claws digging into his skin. He tried to brush them off his legs, and some of them fell, but more clung on. Kurt woke up. Martin pointed down to his legs. But the rats were gone. There was no indication they had ever been there. The tour guide wandered over to see what the commotion was about. Martin couldn't find the words to explain. The tour guide reminded them that the J-Ward liked to play little tricks on people. He asked Martin if he was all right. Martin nodded a languid nod. He'd never experienced reactions like this, but there was a first time for everything. Martin watched his boyfriend's eyes drift back to sleep. He wished he could do the same, but a restlessness seemed to electrify his whole body, the exact opposite of the sensation he was used to. He felt the tug on his jacket again, and this time he followed it. The closer he got to the corridor's entrance, the louder and faster the noises came. He saw the outline of a man in the dark, leaning casually against the wall. Glad to have another insomniac to talk to, Martin stepped forward. But then, he stopped. He looked behind him to see that the rest of his party were just lumps on the floor, all accounted for, even the guide, who was sleeping in his folding chair. Up ahead, one caged light bulb blinked on, sputtering and clicking as a sad buzz filled the air. The light revealed another man further down. He was kneeling, hammering at something on the ground. Martin should have noticed that the casual shadow had disappeared before his eyes, but his gaze was fixed on the motion of the hammer, the fury it seemed to require to make headway. The man was nailing his feet to the floor. Blood sprayed with each effective strike as he continued his work. A strange, close-mouthed, serene smile on his face. Martin took off running, but the corridor seemed to stretch in length. His legs slowed against his will, as if he was on the bottom of the ocean. The floor was covered in a glossy milk of gray and white. He suddenly realized that the hammering had stopped. Now, instead, there were wet footsteps like you'd hear in the locker room of a pool. He tried to run forward, but he felt a hand on his shoulder, pulling him around. The smiling man held him fast, his eyes large and glassy, his pupils nearly filling the whites. He smiled wider, revealing teeth 
as he showed him his hammer and rusty nails. What is perhaps the saddest haunting of Airedale doesn't involve a ghost at all. Visitors and guides have reported seeing a small old woman moving about the grounds. They call her Margaret, and some people recognize her as one of the patients who was expelled from the hospital when it was closed in 1998. She had no other place to go. In 1876, Julian Thomas, otherwise known as the Vagabond, wrote, Of the really insane, it may be said that they are denizens of very different worlds, each a terra incognita of cloud and darkness. They share with each other and with us the brute passions and instincts. But beyond that, we know nothing. We cannot solve their thoughts. That lies beyond us. Their bodies are here, but their souls, where? A change has passed over them, which science itself fails satisfactorily to explain. They are living, and yet dead. If you do make your way two and a half hours north of Melbourne, be careful where you look, and be careful where you sleep. For so many... That sleep was fitful and terror-filled. Perhaps they do not mean to frighten you, but they are so very frightened themselves. They're trapped in cages of our own making, screaming to be let out. But it's the quiet ones you must really look out for, for they plan their dark schemes and wait in the shadows. Be they murderers, mad doctors or sadistic nurses, they belong here. And if you aren't careful, they'll make sure you belong with them. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs> <laughs>